Hey everybody, welcome to The Briefing Room. I'm ABC's Devin Dwyer in Washington. Thanks for joining us today on this very busy Tuesday. I'm here with our senior justice reporter, Jack Date. John Carl joins us from the White House coming up shortly as well. Uh, and we have a Briefing Room exclusive today on one of the largest Medicare frauds ever foiled uh, by the Justice Department. Much more on that coming up in the show. But we start today uh, with this extraordinary first appearance by Attorney General Bill Barr up on Capitol Hill. Also the first time that he's taken questions since Bob Mueller delivered uh, his report on the uh, 2016 election allegations of uh, Russian interference. Uh, and Jack, one of the big headlines coming out of his testimony was that he is almost ready to let the public see uh, a good part of the 400-page document. He says it's coming within a week. Within a week, right. So we're just days away from seeing this report, but it's going to be redacted. Uh, another thing we found out about those redactions, they'll be color-coded, which is helpful. We'll know <laughs> we'll have why. Some, some categories and tabs as we flip through the exactly. pages. Exactly. We'll, we'll understand why those redactions were made. So there's four basic categories that uh, are going to be redacted. Number one, grand jury material. So in the U.S. justice system, uh, grand juries are supposed to be secret. So material that's just in the grand jury needs to stay in the grand jury. It's called Rule 6E. You'll hear it called that sometimes. So that's the, the number one category. Number two, sources and methods. This is also a counterintelligence investigation at its core. So so uh, things like uh, foreign surveillance, wiretaps, things of that nature, uh, the U.S. government wants to protect those sources so they can use them in the future. And Bob Mueller, we know, relied on a lot of that sensitive information in putting together this report. Exactly. So that stuff is... He's also still table. prosecuting a bunch of cases. Precisely. So that's... a. a, a Third category is ongoing prosecutions. And so, you know, Roger Stone's one of them we know of. There's other spinoff cases that are still ongoing, and anything that's required for those cases uh, will, will probably be redacted as well. And then the fourth case is, is, is privacy interests. So that's sort of the the uh, the, the, the Comey problem, and right? That's sort of the catch all bucket of possible redactions. We don't know yet right. how much black ink uh, Bill Barr has spilled on those pages. But, but that has to do with uh, protecting the interests of people who haven't been charged. Right. So the so, Justice Department. So Someone like President Trump, the Trump family, well, perhaps? Well, so he's indicated in, in, in his letters that uh, people on the periphery are who that would apply to. So it, clearly Donald Trump is believed to be at the core of this investigation, and uh, we'll see what he ends up delivering, but one would think uh, that doesn't involve Trump, possibly his family members. And we will see. One of the big questions that we'll be looking for when we get the report in the next few days, according to Bill Barr, is uh, where Bob Mueller came down on this issue of obstruction of justice. In the letter that Bill Barr wrote to the public and released uh, a couple of weeks ago, he said that uh, Bob Mueller uh, specifically did not exonerate President Trump on this question, and he didn't make a determination on his own, although the attorney general said in his, uh, his estimation the president didn't obstruct justice. Uh, but Congressman Charlie Crist of Florida today pressed the attorney general for his reasoning on coming to that conclusion. Take a look. On the question of obstruction of justice, you stated in your March 24th letter uh, that the Mueller report does not exonerate the president. Can you elaborate on what is meant by does not exonerate the president? I think that's the language from the report. Right. I understand that. That's a statement made by the special counsel. Right. I reported as one of his bottom line conclusions. So I'm not in a position to discuss that further until the report is all out. And then what is meant by exonerate is really a question that I can't answer what he but meant by that. But as you sit here today, you, you can't uh, opine after having read the report yourself why it reaches that conclusion 
that it does not exonerate the president. That's right. Um, reports have emerged recently, uh, General, that members of the special counsel's team are frustrated at some level with the limited information included in your March 24th letter uh, that it does not adequately or accurately necessarily portray the report's findings. Do you know what they're referencing with that? No, I don't. I think, I think, uh, I suspect that they probably wanted, you know, more put out. Yeah, Jack, so much criticism over that letter, the first indication the public got uh, of the Mueller report. Uh, Bill Barr saying today that he suspects the Mueller team wanted more to come out, but he didn't want to get in the weeds uh, on the summaries. Do you buy that? He put out a summary, but there were summaries provided he could have used. How do you weigh that? Well, I think in, in this particular area, uh, you know, our understanding is that the special counsel did provide an explanation, uh, a, a more detailed explanation for why they didn't reach a conclusion on obstruction of justice. We don't really get a sense of that from this letter. We don't understand the reasoning behind it. The Mueller report, we expect, will have that. And, and, you know, in a few days, we'll know. In a few days, we will know. I want to bring into the conversation Melissa Murray. She's a constitutional lawyer, uh, former clerk for Justice Sonia Sotomayor. She joins us now from New York, uh, professor at NYU. Uh, Melissa, great to see you. I want to get your take on this whole question uh, of redactions um, and, and the legal underpinnings of, of some of the four buckets that Bill Barr talked about today. Uh, what's your take about how much we could actually learn when he's done blocking some of these things out? Well, it seems from his testimony today that Attorney General Barr is going to take a pretty liberal view of redaction and will redact as much as possible for all of the reasons that were outlined earlier. So certainly because some of this information is still part of an ongoing investigation that Mueller and other attorneys general or U.S. attorneys offices are currently dealing with right now. Um, there are some issues with material that was released and disclosed during grand jury proceedings, which can't under Rule 6E be released until a judge or unless a judge allows it to do so, which was certainly the case in Watergate. Um, the difference, of course, in Watergate was that you had a Republican executive who actually wanted the information released to Congress. And here it seems very clear that General Barr is not in a position or is not willing to go to a judge to have that material released. So I think we're going to have a lot of redaction, lots of black marks or color-coded marks all over this 400-page <laughs> report. Uh, one of the areas, uh, in spite of those marks that the attorney general says we should be able to make some sense of, is this question of whether or not the president obstructed justice as Bob Mueller conducted his work. Um, when you dive into the report, Melissa, uh, in a few days' time and start to look through that section of it, um, what will you be looking for and what do you expect that we'll find when Bob Mueller says there was evidence on both sides of that question? I think one of the things I'll be looking for is the basic elements of obstruction for justice and what kind of evidence the special counsel marshaled to either prove that was the, indeed something that happened or the kind of evidence that could not actually be marshaled. So I think this is a situation where um, it's likely that there wasn't enough evidence gleaned to actually be able to make out such a charge. And that's the reason why special counsel Mueller never actually came to a determination that there was a basis to charge the president with obstruction of justice. And that's a very different matter than saying the president has been completely exonerated. And Jack, one of the other headlines before we move on that came out of this testimony today was the, was the attorney general's uh, 
questioning uh, on the Affordable Care Act position, the uh, Trump administration making that surprise move just a week or so ago to completely support uh, the, uh, the the overturning of the law entirely. Um, a lot of concern from members of Congress today about whether or not the Attorney General actually supports that in the absence of a plan. He didn't exactly plan. give it a robust defense. He basically sort of it on the courts and said it's before the courts. He says, if you think it's such an outrageous position, then you have nothing to worry about. Let the courts do their job. So he, he but he provided no meaningful defense of the Justice Department position on this, which is to basically undo he almost, he almost seemed to suggest by my ear uh, that he sort of assumed that it would fail in the courts and that perhaps it will stand. But I do want to put to Melissa Murray real quick before we do move on. Melissa, uh, there's been so much talk about why the administration shifted on this, why they took the position they did. Um, how much influence does the administration's position have uh, in federal court, uh, even though they're not a party to this case? The real question isn't what's going to happen in the courts. This is really a long shot for the courts because the whole question is whether the individual mandate is unseverable from the rest of the ACA. And for that reason, the entire ACA would be unconstitutional if the individual mandate was unconstitutional. That's a long game. It's going to take a long time to get before the courts and eventually to the Supreme Court. This is a political move to play to the base. President Trump made a promise to his base that he would repeal Obamacare. He's been unable to do that legislatively. He's even more unable to do that now with a majority of Democrats in the House. And so he's taken this different path. This is his last real chance. And you can see all of the opposition he's gotten from his own coalition in the Senate on this question. This is a piece of legislation that's actually quite popular, even among the red states that make up the core of his base. So this is a last-ditch Hail Mary attempt to show that he's down to business and he's doing work, even if that work may not actually pay off for him. All right, Melissa Murray, great to have you with us today from New York, a professor at NYU, constitutional lawyer. Thank you so much. And thanks to Jack Date for his reporting on this uh, as well. Much more to come. Meanwhile, uh, over to the White House now after uh, a tumultuous 24 hours of shakeups at the Department of Homeland Security and the president signaling he's going to take a tougher stance on immigration. The president now says just a short time ago that he's not looking to reinstate family separations as part of that policy. Here's what he told our John Carl in the White House Oval Office. Take a listen. Thank you. Starting the trap separations again. Egypt's back. You were fighter jets from Thanks, Russia. How do you feel about that? Much. Thank you very much, everybody. Thanks, Josh. Thank you very much. Thank you guys. Keep moving. Let's go. Thank you, Josh. Let's go. Make your way out. Come on. Keep moving. Let's go. Obama separated the children, by the way. Just so you understand. President Obama separated the children. Those cages that were shown, I think they were very inappropriate. They were built by President Obama's administration, not by Trump. President Obama had child separation. Take a look. The press knows it. You know it. We all know it. I didn't have — I'm the one that stopped it. President Obama had child separation. Now, I'll tell you something. Once you don't have it, that's why you see many more people coming. They're coming like it's a picnic, because let's go to Disneyland. President Obama separated children. They had child separation. I was the one that changed it. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you, thank you very much. Thank you. We're not looking to do that, now. We're not looking to do that, now. Thank you very much. But it does make — it brings a lot more people to the border. When you don't do it, it brings a lot more people to the border. We are not looking to do it. But President Obama had the law. We changed the law. 
And uh, I think the press should accurately report it, but of course they won't. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right, a chaotic scene there in the Oval Office. Our John Carl was there causing a little trouble, uh, as usual, with those uh, multiple questions, John. But I, I was struck by his answer there at the very end. He seems conflicted about this. He seems, the president seems to believe the policy of separating uh, families works, uh, and yet he did take it off the table there as you pressed him on whether he's reconsidering. It was, at first, it was a bit of a chaotic scene. And as you well know, Dave, Devin, because you've been in there many times, there are two cameras that go in with the pool. So uh, maybe next time you show that, you can show the uh, uh, the other camera that wasn't blocked for much of the answer. And you uh, can actually hear the questions that I was asking because I asked about seven times uh, whether or not, you know, variations of whether or not he was considering reinstating this policy of separation. I asked these questions. Uh, because there were multiple reports, uh, in fact, variations of them in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, um, uh, the Washington Post today, saying uh, that the president uh, had, had asked aides or was talking to aides about reinstating this highly controversial family separations policy, a policy, by the way, uh, that was opposed firmly by both the first lady uh, and the first daughter, uh, Ivanka Trump. So um, I, I asked about that. The president did not seem to want to take my questions, uh, ignored me. And what you'll notice is after I finally said, oh, would you rule out bringing it back, he continued to ignore me. The, the, the pool started to leave. I turned away to leave. And at that point, the president, without even turning to look at me, uh, clearly irritated by the line of questioning, said, uh, Obama separated families, Obama separated children, and then went into his argument about that. And, you know, I said, well, I, I'm asking about you. Would you do this again? And he didn't answer, didn't answer until at the very end when half of that uh, gr group of pool press has, had, had left the room or was on the way out of the room, did he say, I'm not interested in doing that, I'm not interested in doing it. But as you point out, he clearly believes that by stopping the policy of separating uh, those children, those migrant children at the border from the adults with, with whom they crossed over with, he believes uh, that stopping that policy of, of child separation um, that, uh, that, that, that it's led to this massive influx that we have now seen uh, just over the past several weeks, uh, mostly of families coming up across the border. So he clearly, you know, he said he's not going to do it again. He's not looking to do it again. Uh, but, but, but he's clearly uh, mixed about, uh, about what the, uh, what's happened as a result of that decision. So, John, if he's taking that off the table, he's done a shakeup in leadership. The Department of Homeland Security Secretary is out, Secret Service out, some other moves possibly coming. What what do your sources tell you about what is in store next if he is moving toward a harder line on immigration? Well, Devin, we, we a small group of reporters just had a a background briefing with a senior administration official directly involved uh, with crafting the White House policy on immigration, and uh, this this uh, senior official was describing the reason for the changes at at the Department of Homeland Security, especially the the ouster of Kirsten Nielsen, as as a clear frustration on the part of the president that the Department of Homeland Security has not worked quickly enough or effectively enough to uh, 
implement the policies of this president on immigration. It might surprise a lot of people. Uh, uh, the, the, the argument was basically uh, that the Department of Homeland Security had not been tough enough on, on immigration and not been doing what the president wanted. So some of the specifics that were talked about here were taking steps through, uh, through policy um, to, uh, to, to, to basically make it harder for people to go uh, through the process of declaring asylum at the border. Um, it, it gets into some arcane details pretty quickly, but they are looking for it, uh, the bottom line, looking to make it much more difficult for people to come across the border or to come to the border and say, I seek asylum in the United States. They're looking to, to make that a much harder process. And if they succeed in doing that, Devin, uh, it, it'll almost certainly lead to, uh, to, to more court challenges. Yeah, already, uh, as you say, John, the federal judge just yesterday blocked the administration's attempt to keep those asylum seekers in Mexico. We know the asylum ban uh, is on hold. We know his plan to build that border wall with military funds being challenged as well. So a lot of court fights to come as well as they move in this new direction. Uh, John Carl, no our chief White House correspondent at the White House. Thanks a lot, John. Appreciate you being here. Uh, and as Thanks. John was talking there, we saw the new numbers that were just released today by the Department of Customs and Border Protection. Our immigration reporter, Quinn Owen, is here uh, with those new numbers. Now, Quinn, you just got off the phone with Homeland Security officials and, and explain to us what we're seeing here on the screen right now. The numbers for March at about 100,000 people coming to the border. This is a significant increase, Devin, uh, in recent months of people who are stopped at the border. This includes people who are attempting to cross uh, illegally and, and cross over the border, get apprehended right after they do that cross. And it also includes folks who show up to a port of entry and don't have the documentation to get through. And what these numbers account for in the past six months is a more than 375 percent increase compared with the same time last year. Yeah, so this number here, as you were explaining to me earlier, 100,000 people showed up at the border wanting to come in, uh, many of them families. Uh, this is almost double the number in March from a year ago. This, this is a, a major, a, a significant increase from, from this time last year. And uh, like I said, over the past six months, a more than 350% increase. And uh, the big news here is that the most, most of these people are families, which are difficult for CB to deal with. Their facilities have been overwhelmed by the numbers of migrants that have crossed that they've had to apprehend, and they've been forced to divert resources away from legal crossings in order to manage the uh, illegal flows. And you've been down to that border, Quinn, as the president has stopped separating children from their parents, which was something that by law they said they had to do since they couldn't detain them all together. Uh, as these families keep coming, what are they having to do with them? Do they simply release them into the United States as a family unit? The officials that I spoke with today have said they have started to release some of these families wow. just because they're so overwhelmed. They're not able to keep them all and process them. They're released with a notice to appear. They have to come back and uh, go through the court process, the immigration court process, if they make that asylum claim. But they're now being released. So no doubt a frustration to the president. And real quickly, before we let you go, mm -hmm. just want to fact check uh, something the president president has been repeating, we have heard a lot the administration say that President Obama kept children in cages as well. 
Uh, there is some truth to that, although that statement can be a little misleading. Well, the, the government has separated families before in cases where you have, um, uh, where the government determines that a family is unfit to have children after they cross over. That's when a separation takes place. But this actually just came up in, Hill, in testimony on the Hill today, where the head of the Unaccompanied Migrant Children Program explained how the family separation Trump's zero tolerance policy increased those separations uh, remarkably in 2017. All right, Quinn Owen, thanks so much for your reporting, and thanks again uh, to John Carl for his reporting on that. Uh, shifting gears now to a briefing room exclusive today, uh, we've learned about one of the largest Medicare fraud crackdowns uh, in U.S. history. Just a short time ago, federal agents with the FBI uh, and Department uh, of Homeland Security conducted raids in 17 federal jurisdictions across the country, uh, serving dozens of search warrants and making numerous arrests. Uh, this uh, fraud that was uncovered uh, involving nearly a billion taxpayer dollars lost, hundreds of thousands of vulnerable Americans preyed upon. And here in the briefing room a short time ago, I caught up with Gary Cantrell, the Deputy Inspector General for Investigations at the Department of Health and Human Services, who told us just how he uncovered all of this. Put sure. this fraud into perspective. How big was this scheme? This scheme, uh, you know, is approaching or in excess of a billion dollars. Wow and fraud. And this, this kind of taxpayer fraud uh, affects beneficiaries, Medicare patients as well. Their data is collected, their, uh, potentially uh, their identities are, are used for nefarious purposes, they can be sold. Who are the people perpetrating these crimes? They're relatively common, right? But this was a big operation. Yeah, these are, you know, they include doctors, they include marketing firms who are uh, can be overseas they don't even have to be located in the US how did this scheme work Can yeah so walk we have, us through how how it actually worked how people were defrauded here this and other schemes like it um, basically you can have robocalling directly to Medicare patients okay you have uh, direct marketing you have television ads um, and, and they're marketing what they're marketing insulin pumps wheelchairs hospital beds catheters bra braces all types okay. of durable medical equipment and um, they offer it for free or, or very low cost. So a disabled person at home sees the ad, gets the telemarketer's call, says, well, why not, gives yeah. their information, and then Medicare is billed for this equipment, which you're finding actually many people of these people didn't actually need. Right, and that's, that's the fraud. It's equipment that they don't even need. And sometimes, you know, and I've been working at this office for, for over 20 years, and we often in our interviews with patients, we find this, this equipment in the closet. You know, it's not even being utilized. So they have extra braces that just piled up in there that That's taxpayers right. have paid for. How were these people caught? Well, we have a, a lot of sources for information that leads us to some of these scams. Data analytics is key to the OIG's operations to identify scams, to place our resources in the right areas of the country to address this fraud. Uh, we also get whistleblowers, you know. We get patients who call into our hotline who do recognize that this is a fraud scheme. Gary, you've been in the business for a long time uh, as an investigator, uh, part of the federal government, we should say a nonpartisan career right. official. Um, were you surprised when you started to unravel this operation that it was this large? And what do we need to be doing? What does the Congress need to do to crack down on, on things like this? Well, I think the first step is, you know, unscrupulous doctors, unscrupulous uh, durable medical equipment company owners. Uh, these marketing firms, um, their only interest is in, is in the paycheck, is in that taxpayer dollar that's being stolen. And so you have doctors who have little to, to no engagement or interaction with the patients who are willing to sign off 
on these orders, and you have DME companies willing to pay uh, for these signatures so that they can bill, you know, to the tunes of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, for these in these schemes. And it sounds like, from your experience, taxpayers should be pretty outraged by this sort of behavior. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, when I started, you know, uh, in the late '90s, DME fraud was one of the biggest uh, sources of fraud in the Medicare program, and it's ebbed and flowed over the years, but it, it's back, you know, with a vengeance now. All right, and back with a vengeance indeed, Gary Gantrell, uh, again with the Health and Human Services, so thanks to him. And much more on that story on abcnews.com from our uh, reporting team, Ann Flaherty uh, and Sophie Tatum. All right, moving gears now to uh, the Israeli elections overseas in Jerusalem. Polls have just closed a short time ago. I want to go uh, right now to our Jordana Miller. She is joining us live uh, from Israel, where uh, we're just starting to get uh, the results uh, of, of this election, uh, Jordana. So much at stake here, not only for Bibi Netanyahu, Netanyahu, longtime prime minister and ally of President Trump, uh, but also for uh, for Benny Gantz, the uh, his his challenger. What what do you know at this hour? That's right, Devin. And we're learning from the exit polls that this is a race that is still too close to call. Some of those exit polls showing that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is trailing uh, from as much as one to four seats behind General Benny Gantz and others. He is tied. Uh, and if we look at the bigger picture, because this is a parliamentary system, and we look at some of those uh, seats on the right and the left, the right block seems to have more momentum. Uh, that would work in Netanyahu's advantage. But at this point, it is too close to call. We're going to have to wait until the official results come in tomorrow. It shows us how divided Israel is and how this election was really a referendum on Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who is so controversial here now, on the one hand, facing potential criminal charges, but his supporters standing behind him, calling him the only leader that can protect Israel and lead it on the world stage. And Jordana, before we let you go, we know that uh, President Donald Trump was a huge factor uh, in this election campaign over there. Uh, what will it mean for the relationship between Israel and the United States uh, if Netanyahu does, in fact, lose? Well, that's a great question. I mean, the relationship between the United States and Israel is stronger than any one prime minister. Uh, but certainly, uh, Pres uh, Netanyahu and the president have developed such a close relationship. It would be uh, a loss for the White House. His challenger, Benny Gantz, though, sees eye to eye with Netanyahu on the threats from Iran. What we might see uh, that may shift is perhaps on the Israeli side under Gantz a more positive uh, stance towards peace talks with the Palestinians. All right, Jordana Miller, watching the returns come in for us over in Israel. Really appreciate your live reporting, Jordana, uh, and much more coming up uh, as those returns are finalized here on abcnews.com as well. Finally, uh, it's tax time. I don't know if you've done your returns yet. I finally got mine done. We are five days away from tax day. We're also learning some new numbers from the IRS on just uh, how many refunds Americans got this year. Take a look. Uh, these are the latest numbers just before the closing days here of tax season. Turn Turns out 98 million Americans have filed so far. 
a lot of people got refunds this year, almost 76% that 71 million refunds have been issued. The average refund this year, about $2,800. Uh, that's down uh, 20 bucks from last year. A lot of people trying to make sense uh, of the new tax law. This is the first filing season with that Republican tax code. Uh, and speaking of taxes, it's not just all Americans who are due uh, by Monday, but the president's uh, taxes are due as well. And there was a fight underway today on Capitol Hill to get a hold of his taxes. We'll leave you today with this sound from Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, who has his hands on the president taxes, he was asked if he's had any conversations about whether he'll turn them over to Congress. Take a look. Uh, I want to acknowledge we have received the request. As I said before, we will follow the law. We are reviewing it with our internal legal uh, department, and uh, I would leave it at that. All right, his internal legal department reviewing that. Wouldn't expect that uh, to be done anytime soon, but we'll keep an eye up there as we will on all the major headlines and developments here in Washington this week. Hope you join us here tomorrow, 3.30 Eastern time in the briefing room. You can watch us on the ABC News app. Download it if you don't have it. Of course, we're always at abcnews.com, Apple TV, Hulu, Roku. Find us there all the time. Thanks for watching. I'm Devin Dwyer in Washington. See you next time.